0: This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hi, everyone. I'm Sarah Gregory, and today... I'm talking to Dr. Thomas Geisbert in Galveston, Texas. He's a professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at the University of Texas Medical Branch. We'll be discussing his article about a vaccine to protect against Nipah virus disease. Welcome, Dr. Geisbert. Good afternoon. The World Health Organization considers Nipah virus to be a priority pathogen. What does this designation actually mean?
1: okay so the World Health Organization has basically developed criteria for um, you know determining which um, uh, pathogens, which diseases uh, that they should prioritize uh, for research and development, uh, particularly for public health emergency uh, situations so uh, you know in other words, uh, kind of help direct Resources worldwide, and and where people should put an emphasis uh, on on again research and development. Um, You know, particularly again for those diseases that pose uh, pose you know a public health risk uh, and have epidemic potential. And this is really important for particular pathogens for which there are no medical countermeasures, so no vaccines or treatments.
0: Okay, and what is Nipah virus?
1: Okay, so Nipah virus it's a paramyxovirus. Um, it was discovered initially uh, in 1998 and 1999 uh, during a large outbreak. and this occurred in pig farmers uh, and people that had close contacts with pigs that were infected in Malaysia and Singapore uh, pretty much concurrently. So what NEPA virus does when it infects a person or a susceptible animal um, is it causes an acute respiratory uh, illness, and then also can cause fatal encephalitis. Um, the case fatality rates during uh, human outbreaks have typically ranged from around 40% to greater than 90%, and that depends on the strain of Nipah virus. Um, there are two particular types of Nipah virus, what we, what we call strains or variants, that are genetically distinct. One is called the Bangladesh strain, and, and one is called the Malaysia strain. The Bangladesh strain has been associated with the higher case fatality rates, you know, probably more in the 75-plus uh, percent range.
0: Uh, backing up just a second, right at the beginning, uh, um, you said that uh, virus was a certain virus class. Uh, what was that?
1: Yeah, it's a paramyxovirus. Which is what? Uh, paramyxovirus is uh, a family of viruses, and it includes um, a number of different uh, genera. One is uh, the paramyxoviruses like peroinfluenza virus and mumps. Um, and another is pneumovirus, which includes, uh, you know, like respiratory syncytial virus, things like that.
0: So tell us about the recent outbreaks.
1: And again, you know, the one strain, the Malaysia strain, was uh, first identified in the concurrent outbreaks in 1999 uh, in Malaysia and Singapore. But um, the Bangladesh strain, which is the more pathogenic strain, Uh, has caused repeated outbreaks in both Bangladesh and northeastern India uh, that have occurred almost on a yearly basis from 2001 to 2015. And then it started to get some media attention last year. um, There was a deadly uh, outbreak that had a very high case fatality rate of almost 90%. And this occurred in southwestern India, started in the spring of 2018, uh, and it occurred in an area where NEPA virus had previously not been reported. And then, again, in that same area, there has been a single case so far this year. Uh,
0: So the virus affects both humans and animals, so it's a zoonotic disease. How is it spread between species?
1: Well, um, so there is strong evidence that suggests that um, bats, these large bats, uh, terapic bats, they call them, very large bats, are the reservoir host of NEPA virus in nature. So NEPA gets into these bats. It doesn't cause disease in the bats, but the bats can then transmit NEPA to um, humans or pigs or other animals. So basically humans become infected with NEPA through close contact with either infected bats or infected pigs or actually from people that uh, were infected with NEPA. I think one of the big concerns with uh, NEPA, particularly the Bangladesh strain, is that you have person-to-person transmission uh, that's actually been documented uh, in Bangladesh and in India. Um, this would mostly occur, you know, between, like, uh, family members or primary care providers or, or things like that. One of the other um, frequent examples of NEPA transmission occurs uh, because of uh, human consumption of date palm sap in that part of the world. So, uh, you know, people, they collect um, sap from date um, palm trees, these palm trees. And what happens, you know, the bats are up there and they get infected and they excret out the feces, of urine things like that from the bats, get into the date palm sap and contaminate it, and then people ingest that, and they contract NEPA that way.
0: I'd just like to interject right here for listeners that we actually have a podcast on that uh, date palm infection scenario, so if you want to look for that, you can find it in our list of um, podcasts. Are there any current vaccines that protect against this virus?
1: There are currently no licensed vaccines um for human use. Um there have been at least eight different candidate vaccines that have been tested in preclinical models uh in you know and animals in biosafety level four laboratories. Uh one of NEPA virus is a biosafety level four agent, so all the work that is done with NEPA has to be done in a biosafety level four lab. And that's a lab where you basically be you the movie E. T. You have to wear a spacesuit and there's only A few labs here in the United States where, uh, and even in the world where um, you can work with NEPA, one is obviously at CDC in Atlanta, one is in Galveston, and there's a few others across the country. Uh, So that's kind of hindered um, some of the research and development um, on NEPA, but... um, but uh, so basically, you know, again, uh, no licensed vaccines for human use. There's been some vaccines that have been tested in preclinical animal models. Most of that work, believe it or not, was done against the less pathogenic Malaysia strain that was initially of NEPA that was initially um, uh, discovered uh, during the the uh, original outbreak. Um, and and uh, so it's only recently that work has started to be done on the more pathogenic Bangladesh strain. So okay, well, tell us about your study then our study was designed uh, basically to test the protective efficacy of some vaccines that we recently developed against Nipah virus uh, in the African green monkey model. Now the African green monkey model is uh, the animal model that most accurately represent reflects the human condition. So, you know, if you're going to, test any medical countermeasure, whether it's a vaccine or a treatment, uh, to see if it works or not, you want to use an animal model that, um, you know, because we have a, a animal something called the FDA animal rule here in the United States that in order to license a vaccine, if you're not going to test it in people, you have to show, in addition to being safe, you have to show that it works in a relevant animal model. Uh, and the most animal, uh, relevant animal model uh, was the African green monkey It currently is, so we use that model uh, to test our, our newly developed vaccines.
0: Uh, so this study tested to see if um, recombinant vesicular stomatitis uh, viruses, also known as RVSVS, could be used as a vaccine for this virus. What is this virus and why would it protect against NEPA?
1: VSV is actually a rhabdovirus. So a uh, rhabdovirus is a virus like rabies virus. Uh, but VSV can cause um, mild Illness and lesions in hoved animals, but it does not cause any significant disease in humans. So, a number of years ago, um, a researcher named Jack Rose uh, really pioneered the use of VSV, vesicular uh, stomatitis virus, as a vaccine vector system. So, you know, using a an attenuated, non virulent virus as a delivery tool uh, to deliver antigens against a particular. Um, pathogen. Uh, in this case, NEPA. So basically what you're doing is you're trying to trick the immune system, right? You, you, what you have is a, a bullet-shaped virus that looks like a rabies virus. Um, and what we do is it's basically like a protein exchange vector. So um, these VSV these, um, vectors would be coated on the surface uh, with what we call a glycoprotein, and that's how the uh, the virus would attach to a host cell. Well, basically, we take out the gene that encodes that virus um, or that surface glycoprotein and we put in a, a glycoprotein of interest, like NEPA or Ebola or any kind of a, of a particular agent that we're interested in. And so what you end up with is this, you envision like this little cartoon of a bullet-shaped virus, and instead of having a VSV coat on the surface, it now has a NEPA coat or, or a um, a uh, Ebola coat, for example. So, uh, when you inject this into an animal or a human, um, it doesn't behave like NEPA or Ebola, but it makes your body think you're seeing NEPA or Ebola. So you develop so you develop an immune response against it. Um, I would say that probably uh, you know your your audience may be very familiar with what we call the VSV Ebola vaccine uh, that was used in the Ebola outbreak in 2013. Uh, the 16 in West Africa is currently being used in the Ebola outbreak in the Congo. Uh, uh, Merck uh, took over um, the um, licensure of that vaccine and is manufacturing it. But this is basically the exact same system, where instead of you know having an Ebola glycoprotein, uh, we have an Ebola glycoprotein.
0: Um, I may be misremembering, but these are kind of short-lived vaccines, Right.
1: Yeah, you you get a very they're they're, they're replication competent vaccines. So you know you, you you have situations where some vaccines are killed vaccines, some vaccines are live vaccines. Yellow fever is a great uh, example of a live vaccine where it's uh, you know, basically a crippled virus that you know replicates but doesn't really cause any harm, and you generate a long lived immune. To mimic here, we wanted to have a vector that was a replication uh, competent, or, or let's just say, uh, maybe it's not fully replication competent, but it's um, it's single cycle, so it goes through a you know one replication cycle. Uh, so it's like you get a transient infection. I'm, I'm trying to say the salamis terms as best I can. Um, uh, but, but you don't have a fully replication confidence, so it's not like the virus is going to keep replicating and cause damage to the animal or the human that you, um, that you give it to.
0: Okay. So um, how how effective is this uh, vaccine now for NIVA?
1: Yeah, it, it works great. All the non-human primates that were, in, were given a single injection of this vaccine, when we came back uh, 28 days later, and we challenged them with a really large, high dose of Nipah virus, they were all completely protected.
0: Oh, okay. Um, how would this be administered?
1: It's it's given by a single intramuscular injection in the arm or leg or, or any muscle like you would give any other vaccine. Not well, say any other vaccine. Most other vaccines, because there are oral vaccines, right? Like
0: polio, um, right? So uh, this would move on from primate testing, theoretically, to being used to protect humans that are in the path of this virus.
1: Correct. Correct. Um, there's there's been a lot of interest, not just from the World Health Organization, but um, the um, I, I don't know the, the acronym is Sapi Cepi. Um, Basically, it's a philanthropic organization that's funded by Wellcome Trust um, and a lot of other partners. And um, NEPA and LASA are two of the viruses that they picked to move forward for vaccine development. And so I'm not, I am not—I don't know what the status will be for this particular NEPA vaccine, but there certainly appears to be some interest now in developing um, vaccines for some of these neglected pathogens like NEPA.
0: And why did you do this study?
1: I've always been interested in high-consequence pathogens. Um, I started my career uh, working for the Army uh, at USAMRID in Fort Detrick, Maryland, um, back uh, in the late 1980s, and um, was associated with a story called The Hot Zone that Richard Preston made famous. And mm-hmm.
0: A different RVSV vaccine has also made headlines. Are these vaccines related? Is this the Ebola one you were talking about?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think you're referring to the VSV Ebola vaccine that was successfully used in West Africa during the uh, 2013 to 16 Ebola epidemic. It was shown to be effective, so it did work. It uh, protected people. Um, It's currently being used in the Congo uh, during the current Ebola outbreak. And so, the backbone or the vector system that's used to make the, the NEPA vaccine that we have uh, in the current paper is the same backbone that was um, used to make the murky-bola vaccine that's being used in Africa.
0: Uh, what was the most challenging part of this study for you?
1: I would by far say having to do these studies in biosafety level 4 containment. Um, everything takes two to three times as long or more to do when you're wearing a space suit and you're hooked to an air hose. Um, you know, there's there's a, a lot of challenges in working in that environment.
0: Why don't you give us a little rundown of some of those? I think listeners would be really interested in that. And I just want to say, the you mentioned there was one at CDC, which there is, and these are deep, deep, deep down into the ground. <laughs>
1: well. <laughs> They're not. They're actually just. They're 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 high security. So you, um, we actually are – Most of them are built above ground, but they're 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 basically what I would say is a box within a box within a box. Um, so they're in the very center of of the facility. Um, you know they're, um, you know they're, the labs are under negative pressure and there's multiple layers of security and built in safety designs so that the agents cannot get out. So
0: when you go into one, you kind of, you put on, you, you... Yeah, so
1: basically, there's multiple layers of security that you go through with either, you know, a badge uh, or um, or a, uh, a fingerprint, a combination of a badge and a fingerprint and a pin code. And you eventually end up in a change room. And it's, it's just like any other change room, you know, and you strip down to your birthday suit and you put on uh, scrubs. And then you go through, you walk, you don't take a personal shower, but you walk through just like a regular shower, water shower. And you walk into this larger room where all the spacesuits are hanging. Uh-huh. And then you put your spacesuit on. And then every lab maybe has a little bit of a unique system. Some of them have iris scans for your eyes. Some of them have uh, PIN codes. But you'll go through a PIN code and you walk through what we call a disinfectant shower. And again, you're not taking a shower that's what you'll do on the way out. Mm. So you walk in, and and, um, and it's designed so that both doors cannot be opened at the same time. And so when when you get into the hot side where we work with the viruses, when you close that side of the shower door, then it automatically triggers the disinfectant shower to go off. Um, so then, you you know, you're going to be in your spacesuit and you're doing whatever you would do in any other laboratory. So, you know, there's cell culture areas where you would work with the viruses and then there's animal areas where we have the animals and, you know, you uh, do the studies with the animals. Uh, when you're done and you clean up, you know, you, you, um, you, know, you obviously spray any uh, areas where you would have virus um, and you clean your boots off and that kind of thing. You go down and you would take your boots off and you would get he would go into the disinfectant shower and that's like being in a car wash right it's like you know it's like just it, that's the best way that i can describe it as a car wash so you're, you're going to be in there and you're going to get like 30 seconds of water and then you're going to get like probably seven to eight minutes of a um it's called microchem it's an alcohol chloride solution that kills viruses and, and things like that and you're just going to be in there and it's a big, heavy fog mist and not a place for claustrophobic people to be, right? Mm. And then you're going to get another 30 seconds of, of water, and then the the there's a mechanism that will release the door, and then you go into the area where you take off your spacesuit. Um, and then you go into the, a little small change room where you take off your scrubs, and then you have to take a personal shower. And then you're back in the area where you put your street clothes back on.
0: Mm, okay.
1: So you know, just the process of leaving the BL4 lab and taking you know going through the disinfectant shower, taking your spacesuit off, you know, taking your scrubs off, going through a personal shower, and putting your street clothes back on—you're looking at you know 25, 30 minutes just for that.
0: Right. Okay. Your article highlights the fact that this is a single dose vaccine. Why do we need a single dose vaccine?
1: Good question. So in the context, if there's an outbreak of some kind, or there's even some kind of a, um, you know, deliberate misuse of the virus, there's some kind of bioterrorist incident, you're not going to have time um, to have a vaccine that takes a long time to work. And you want a vaccine that works rapidly. So, you know, let's say there's an outbreak in some part of the world and the World Health Organization or some a uh, humanitarian aid organization like uh, Medicine Sans Frontiers or the, some other country, you know, our country, CDC, helps out with these outbreaks frequently. You know, if you send a team of people in there to help combat the outbreak, um, you're looking at multiple strategies of how to protect people. You want to protect the uh, the first responders because in a lot of these outbreaks, uh, particularly Ebola outbreaks, it's the first responders that are at the highest risk and often get infected. Um you know, and then you have situations where, it, like um, the way that the VSV Ebola vaccine was so effectively used in West Africa a few years ago, is that it was used in a ring vaccination strategy. So what that means is you you identify people that have Ebola, and then you it's very important your epidemiologists are hugely important because you go out and find all the people that contacted those people, and then the contacts of those contacts, and then you basically create a ring around that, which is why it's called a ring vaccination strategy, and by vaccinating all those people, and through that process you can really stop uh, an outbreak, and it really helps control the, you know and helps control and manage an outbreak. Um, So that would be really, really hard to do if the vaccine required multiple injections and took a long time to work. So ideally, you want a a single injection vaccine that works really quickly so that you can control an outbreak.
0: Okay, so what are the next steps for this potential vaccine?
1: You know, there's not a large global market um, for um, vaccines that uh, are targeted for um, some of these exotic pathogens, um, you know, like Ebola or Lassa or NEPA. So I think it really requires um, sponsorship or um, support from government agencies, not just the U.S. government, but other governments, uh, philanthropists, and um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, CEPI and Welcome Trust have got involved. Uh, I think Gates Foundation has historically involved, been involved with not necessarily NEPA, but things like this. So I think really for this or any other NEPA vaccine to really go forward for advanced development in human use, it's going to require that type of uh, support.
0: You talk some about what you do, your high consequence passage and job, which I think is absolutely so fascinating. What a great job. Um, you want to tell us a little bit more about it?
1: I work with any virus that requires BL4 containment. So, you know, Ebola, Marburg, uh, Lhasa NEPA are some of the ones that we focus a lot on. Uh, I am a professor. Uh, UTMB is an academic institution, so we have students. Um, that's, I think, one of the really important functions of my job, which I enjoy tremendously. Um, you know, is the interaction and teaching other people uh, how to work in a high containment lab, and um, you know, set you know, kind of how to how to work in that type of environment, which you know does take a lot of time. We've really focused on pathogenesis again, trying to understand how a virus causes disease in a host. And so not necessarily always a vaccine, but, you know, if we understand, um, you know, some critical pathway that the virus uses or, you know, can that help us develop interventions and, and, you know, stop the virus? Uh, So that's kind of been uh, historically the interest of my lab. And finally,
0: are you optimistic about the future of vaccines in general?
1: Yeah, yeah, I am, because I think when you look historically, vaccines are the best way to prevent or control outbreaks or epidemics of infectious diseases. I mean, you know, I think there's so many examples of that through history with, um, you know, pox virus or, you know, smallpox or yellow fever. Um, there's just been so many examples, you know, currently, I mean, you know, the flu vaccines, and certainly that's a challenge every year to get that right. But I think, um, you know, Historically, uh, they've, vaccines have really proven to be the best way to combat infectious diseases. Well,
0: thank you so much for taking this time to talk with me today, Dr. Geisbert. Thank you. And thanks for joining me out there. Uh, you can read the June 2019 article Use of Single Injection Recombinant Vesicular Stomatitis Virus Vaccine to Protect Nonhuman Primates Against Lethal Nipah Virus Disease. Online at cdc.gov eid. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.